Good evening, uh, Trading Informed Church. It's great to be with you this evening, even though this is a recording. I will be probably watching it with you and cringing because it's weird to watch your own video. But anyway, we are taking a break from Matthew just for a couple weeks. I know everyone's excited to go through Matthew with Brian, as am I. I, I suggested this to Brian and Jeff because I think Munster, Munster the rebellion, the Anabaptist rebellion in Munster, is a fantastic part of church history. And when I use the term fantastic, I don't mean it in a way that it is good or uh, good or something that it should be emulated. Fantastic meaning that it is unbelievable in its scope and it is fictional in how it came about and was carried out and its ultimate end. And as Christians, we need to know our history, uh, our church history, the history of the brethren as uh, the good and the bad. Sometimes we, as Protestants, we caricaturize, or we uh, have a caricature, ugh, I can't even say the word, caricature of the Reformation where everyone was united against the, the Rome and all of these great doctrines were put in place. But in reality, there was fractions within the Reformed uh, group within different regions, the Swiss Reformation and the German Reformation and the Scottish Reformation. Uh, we do see some schisms and we see some divisions rise within the Reformed group that eventually turn into this Anabaptist uh, movement who eventually will become the most hated sect in Europe. Both Protestant and Catholics will join forces in destroying this Anabaptist movement, especially when they take over the city of Munster. But before we do that, let's open up in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank you for allowing us to gather here this evening. I, I pray that even though this is, this is history and it may sound like I'm just talking about facts and history, like it's uh, cool knowledge to have, Lord, let us learn that, uh, learn lessons from history and know that these aren't just random things happening. You are a sovereign God and these are part of your decree, even as fantastic as they are. We can be secure that that even as horrible as some of this uh, some of these things sound for your people, uh, it is meant for good and is meant for good for your church. And uh, let us uh, think about these things as we look uh, into the study. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to start before we actually get into, of course, the the Anabaptist rebellion monster. I think it's important to just define what Anabaptism is, Anabaptism is what the, how the sect came about, the, the humble origins of the Anabaptists. And we have to actually go back to the, the beginning of the Swiss Reformation in Zurich with Ulrich Zwingli and Conrad Grebel uh, and some of the, the Swiss reformers there. Because that's and historians will differ on, they'll point to different men that really ha- were the catalyst for the Anabaptist movement. Most historians will point to, though, the Swiss Reformation and what happens uh, in Zurich really as a springboard into this, this movement. So we're going to start there. Uh, just a brief a reminder who Zwingli is. He's, he's uh, again, a, a, he lives in Zurich. Uh, he is at one point a, a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. He's a humanist at one point and is studying the epistles of Paul. He's fluent in Greek and Hebrew and, of course, Latin. In his reading of Paul, he's finding out that Scripture actually uh, is very specific in talking about justification. He sees the ecclesiastical traditions of the church being very much outside the traditions of the apostolic fathers and and the epistles and even uh, like Augustine and whatnot. He, he's, he, he's in Zurich. He's preaching in Zurich. He's very popular in Zurich. He is an amazing teacher. He exegetes the text well, and he explains the text well to the people in Zurich. He, he of course, there are followers that, go, that flock to Zwingli and are actually pupils of his who he, whom he is teaching. He's teaching them Greek. He's teaching them Hebrew. And they are, of course, all for the, the Reformation 
some of them start becoming a little more radical. They're, they're obviously agreeing with, with Zwingli and the idea of sola scriptura. Scripture is the final authority for faith and practice. They're seeing a little bit, there's, although they are seeing a contradiction of what Zwingli is doing and what he is saying. Uh, Conrad Grable especially starts bringing up issues with sacralism. So, again, a brief definition of what sacralism is. It's the intertwining of state and church where either can call on the other to enforce whatever they, they wish. So, in the case of the church, if there is a, a priest or something saying something that is heretical, they can bring the state in to enact punishment. And that could be to death, obviously. And of course, the church can influence the state as well in whatever uh, means that they that they wish. Conrad Grable ha- is seeing that if sola scriptura is true, and they're not calling it sola scriptura at the time, but if if scripture is the final authority, then this idea, especially in Zurich, that the city council is involved in church matters, that this doesn't compute. So if if scripture alone is the final authority, we can't have the city council interfering with the church. And it's, it's of my opinion, and there are historians that agree, I, I believe Zwingli believed this as well. Although he was much more cautious in how this was going to unfold. He understood that, okay, sacralism uh, isn't what the church was supposed to be. However, this is the fabric of society at the time. And to undermine that balance is going to bring chaos and, uh, and not order in the church and... Uh, Geopolitically as well. His idea was to teach the people these ideas and slowly bring them uh, into, into line with these views that the Reformation is, is putting out there. Uh, and to reform the church, not to rebel against the church and rebel against authority. He wanted to reform what was there. And sacralism had been, has been around for generations, obviously. So this this is uh, would be an extremely tough break if Conrad Grable had his way. He would there would be a, just a severing from from the government and the church being free. So a free church away from any influence of the government whatsoever. Uh, between Zwingli and Conrad Grable, this matter kept coming up uh, and. Obviously, Grable did not agree with Zwingli, but he, he stayed with Zwingli for a while, uh, and he kind of put that to the side uh, for the, in the meantime. And, of course, he, had about, he stewed on it for about a year and a half. Conrad Grable did this, the, this issue with the city council and the church. And in the 16th century, a year and a half is actually very quickly for ideas to change, for uh, things to uh, happen in the 16th century. Today, we're used to things happening by the second, by the minute. We see social change happen within just a couple of years. That it, you know, you look back 10 years ago, it's a completely different society than it is today. In the 16th century, it was much slower. So a year and a half is actually very quick in the 16th century. Um, So Conrad Grable is questioning Zwingli on his views with Sola Scriptura and it has, what it has to do with the city council. Uh, two men are there, are, there are two more men who are agreeing with Conrad Grable here that are more, that are more uh, radical in the Reformation idea. And that is uh, Simon Stumpf, that's an interesting name, uh, and William Rublin. Uh, these actually, these two men are actually not native to Zurich. They come from out, places outside of Zurich. They they come into Zurich because of the Reformation, and they are on Conrad Grable's camp with this idea of radical separation from from the state and the free church. So we see the entrance of these two men. While this is happening, while the disagreements between Zwingli and Conrad Grable are, are happening. The, the more radical reform movement is actually meeting together, reading scripture together, and trying to figure out what else is scripture saying that the church is doing that is outside of the confines of scripture. Well, Wilhelm Rublin is, is finding out, well, actually, tithes are not mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, during this time, you paid tithe, you were paid tithes at the church and it was mandatory. It was mandatory tithes, mandatory taxes. You had no choice. You paid those. Well, that's not mentioned in the New Testament at all. So they bring this issue up. 
uh, and of course, the people, the lay people, as Wilhelm Rubin is, is mentioning these things, are actually agreeing with him, obviously. I mean, they are, this is a financial burden. Of course, they're going to agree. I don't want to pay tithes to the church if I don't have to. And especially if you're saying the Bible doesn't say anything about it, because the church is actually supporting the Bible. So if the Bible doesn't say it, what is it how does the church come up with these things? Okay, so we have Wilhelm Rublin and Conrad Grable addressing these things to Zwingli. Zwingli actually uh, confronts these issues in a sermon that he, he does uh, in, in church. And again, Zwingli is much more is conservative and cautious, and that's what he is preaching on, that these things need to be slow, and we can't break from the authority like this. Of course, the radical reformers don't like this one bit, uh, and they are becoming more their unity with Zwingli is, is starting to fracture a little bit because they're going one direction Zwingli's going another direction with the, with the Swiss Reformation uh, another issue they, they're bringing up is the idea of images in the church of course they're, they're seeing that the Bible explicitly forbids uh, worship through images images of any, any sort like that they want to go through Zurich, especially, and tear down these images. Zwingli obviously is agreeing with this, but he is not advocating for some kind of iconocla- iconoclasm or iconoclast mob to go through the city ripping down images. Well, unfortunately, that's exactly what happens. And a mob forms uh, and starts ripping down uh, images of Mary and, and obviously Christ. And they're not just limited to those. They actually are ripping down crosses. So we see a lot of churches that have crosses in the background. They're they're ripping these down. There's actually a famous cross in the entrance of Zurich that this mob destroys uh, as this iconoclasm begins. And then we're getting to the issue of the Mass. Right? This is a big problem with, with, with the Reformation in general, with justification. Uh, and, of course, Zwingli is in the camp of the Mass not being scriptural whatsoever. The radical reformers are also there, but they want it to cease in the city altogether right now. Uh, and, of course, again, the, the more cautious reformers want to do this slowly. They bring this up to the city council. The city council meets, and of course, to the radical reformers, they've already expressed their discontent with the city council interfering at all with, with church polity. So the fact that the city council is meeting to, to decide on the issue of how, what we're going to do with the mass in the city of Zurich during the Refor- as the Reformation is happening probably upset them greatly. Uh, the council, while they didn't condemn the mass, they decided to say, well— if a priest doesn't want to do the Mass, if he finds it uh, anti-biblical, or uh, he does not have to do the Mass. But we're not gonna, they're not going to outlaw it. They're gonna, if priests want to do the Mass, they're going to allow them to do it. This, of course, was a big issue, again, with the more radical reform movement. So now we have a, a few issues. So we have the issue of sacralism. They're not being the, the reformers like Zwingli are not being aggressive enough with the the cessation from the council. They have issue with images that they're not. They feel they're not dealing with harshly enough. The mass was probably the biggest issue that they the radical reformers are saying this needs to stop now. Uh, again, the, Zwingli and the other conservative reformers are doing this in a more cautious fashion. And. They actually, during the council meeting, when the council's meeting this, of course, Wingley's there, the radical reformers are there, Conrad's there, Wilhelm Rublin's there, Stumpf is there. When the council brings, reads this decision to the group, Stumpf uh, quotes, uh, is quoted saying this to, to, to Zwingli, Master Ulrich, you do not have the right place, or the right to place the decision in the hands of lords, for the decision has already been made. The Spirit of God decides. So, officially they have noted their dissent in this decision of the city council. 
And this is really the point where the fracture in the reform movement in, in Switzerland uh, is hopelessly divided. They're willing to give a little ground here and there, but this issue with mass especially has now fractured the movement. It will never come back together. This is true in the reform movement in other areas. Luther, Luther and Zwingli separate. Uh, they, that reformation never comes together again. Uh, and so this is, this is not something that's un, unusual in the Reformation. So these two groups are fractured at this point. This is the, this is the beginning of what's going to turn into this Anabaptist movement. <clears throat> There's another idea floating around, and this kind of attaches itself with the idea of, of sacralism, right? Uh, being sacral is a geopolitical idea that if you're born in a certain region— you are whatever that religion is. So when the Holy Roman Empire, the Roman Empire became Christian, right? It's sacral. So though if you're born in Rome, you are born a Christian. So the church was full of, well, what they categorized as church, the society was, was full of believers and unbelievers. The state made everyone go to church, right? So the, the, the radical, Conrad Grable and Rublin started protesting and saying, no, the church needs to be of avowed Christians only. And of course, we would say, well, okay, what is an avowed Christian? How do you determine what a avowed Christian is? Uh, of course, they don't really define that. They don't define how we, one would figure out who is an avowed Christian or not. They just knew that the idea that having unbelievers in the church with believers is uh, and their their argument would say scripture doesn't allow that in the first century church they would argue that it was only avid believers that were in the church of course Wingley would disagree with this uh, th- that assessment he understands Wingley understands that the idea of the, the sacral environment of believers and unbelievers in the church of of uh, obviously not being true but we we obviously see a visible church and an invisible church Zwingli understood this idea. He argues with Matthew uh, chapter 13, verses 24 uh, through 30, the wheat and the chaff, right? The whole point of wheat and the chaff is it's hard to differ between the two, right? And you're not going to just wipe down the whole field because you're going to take the wheat with you when you're trying to get rid of the chaff. Uh, Matthew's talking about the actual church, right? So people are calling themselves believers who actually are not believers, this is something that permeates is going to permeate the church until Christ returns, and this was Zwingli's argument to Rubel uh, and Conrad Grable uh, and whatnot. So uh, Zwingli was quoted as saying uh, to the men, "What are the angels to do on the day of judgment if we are to separate them now?" Conrad Grable and his radical reformers during this time are, are getting together and studying the scriptures, trying to figure out, really contrasting what the church traditions are and they're reading scripture and trying to figure out what is consistent with scripture and what is not consistent. Uh, during their study, they, they actually read a letter to a man uh, called Thomas Munzer, M-U-N-T-Z-E-R, it's not Munster, so Munzer, writes a letter to Thomas Munzer. And it's very revealing because it kind of shows where, where they're going in their doctrine, where they're going in their theology. And Munz, Munz, uh, Thomas Munzer is sympathetic to these radical reformers in Zurich. Not on board with all of what they believe at this time. But in the letter that they write to Thomas, uh, what they find that is not mentioned in Scripture is, is one is singing. So there's, there's no singing mentioned in, in, in scripture. So that shouldn't be happening. Uh, tithes, tithes must be voluntary. The sword uh, is not used to defend either the gospel nor those who, uh, who receive it. So there, there's a, the pushback of sacralism there. Uh, and of course, children who have not become, uh, who have not become discerned or have discernment of good and evil are saved. So this is the idea of uh, this. Is, this is the age of accountability, essentially. So they're 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 going to say now where they're going towards. If it, if a child doesn't have the ability to discern good or evil, they're actually saved. And uh, of course, the last thing they write in this letter to Thomas 
is that infant baptism is not just not in scripture or found really found anywhere that they can see in scripture, but that it is blasphemous. So at one point, uh, the uh, Conrad Grable and Wilhelm Rublin, they, they actually meet with, with Thomas Munzer. There's no record of what they actually talked about during this meeting, and they actually don't really correspond afterwards. Uh, Munzer becomes famous. Thomas Munzer later becomes famous for leading uh, a group of peasants, and the peasants were against their lords and are all wiped out, of course. Uh, so that's where his name uh, becomes, I, I wouldn't say, well, probably more infamous. <clears throat> But during all this, this discontent within the Reformation in Zurich, in 1525, the opposition, the opposition reached a point where the city council uh, decided to have the subject of infant baptism specifically be addressed uh, because uh, what was happening is the, procl- the proclamation against infant baptism with Rublin and, and Conrad uh, was gaining a foot ground with the populace. Some were withholding their, their babies from being baptized. And it came to a point where the council needed to address this. So they decided to have the, the, the issue discussed. So they were going to have a debate, essentially have a debate. Uh, it was going to be Gr- uh, Grubel, Rublin, and on the other side was going to be Zwingli and the other reform, conservative reformers on the other side. So the two parties came together, the disputate, the, the uh, Disputation was laid out. The arguments were laid out. Uh, the city council overwhelmingly sides with Zwingli. Zwingli mops the floor with these with these guys. Well, Zwingli and and his uh, the other guys on the other side completely decimate the arguments of of Grubel and Wilhelm Rublin. <clears throat> and uh, because they are victorious, because sacralism is an integral part of society at this point. The city council reacts to this this victory. So it's not just uh, the city council is not saying, "Oh, good job, Zwingli, you won the debate." Uh, pat on the back. We'll see you next week. No, because they're because they have convinced the city council. Uh, Zwingli has convinced the city council of infant baptism and against these other issues that these radicals are bringing up. They're actually going to enforce these onto these men, onto these radical men. <clears throat> So the city council actually is going to forbid the native uh, radicals from gathering together to have these, they call them schools of agitation. So they can't come together and, and really kind of throw ideas at each other and come up with these doctrines. And the ones that are not native to Zurich, they actually abolish these men. They got to leave the city. Uh, this is going to be the first persecution of this Anabaptist movement, and they give them, they give the the non-native men about a, a week or so to get out of town. <clears throat> and a week later, on the day of expulsion, on the day that the men were supposed to leave, we have the first recorded rebaptism or Anabaptism uh, of of these radical reformers in in Zurich. Uh, now I want to stop there and kind of just talk about the term Anabaptism real quickly because to to someone that was in in that sector in that movement would never refer, refer to themselves of, as Anabaptist. Anna is just a prefix in Greek. The term Anabaptism is actually translated as again baptized or baptized again. Their argument obviously would be. Well, because sacralism exists, you're born identif- identified as, as a Christian. You're, you're baptized as an infant, more as an initiation into society. This is how they track who is paying tithes, what families are paying tithes, and, and whatnot. And it's not a confessional baptism of belief. They disregard that baptism altogether. So to, to, to these men, to these, and I'll call them well, the radical reformers of the Anabaptist movement that's emerging here. To these men, you're being baptized. You haven't been baptized yet. So the first baptism is after your confession, right? And they've already determined, well, Scripture 
doesn't allow for any type of baptism other than confessional belief. So babies, okay, we'll just say that babies then are all saved up to the point of age of accountability. And then at that, after that, you have to actually confess belief to be, to be baptized. So how they refer to each other was they actually call themselves the brethren or the, the, the earnest fellow Christian. Anabaptism was a derogatory term that was used by their opponents uh, against them. Of course, that's why you get the baptized, again, baptized, right? The Anabaptist. <clears throat> so anyone in that movement would not associate with Anabaptism. They would, they would uh, for the reasons I just mentioned. <clears throat> so another interesting, another, in the divide between the radical reformers and the conservative reformers, we, we see where infant baptism was initially a, a law of the church. Uh, at this, when I say the church, the Catholic church, before the Reformation, that was a law of, of the universal church. Now the Reformation has happened. It's still a law of the church, of the, even the reformed, of those in the reformed, uh, the Protestant church. But now it's switched because the city council agreed with Zwingli and, and his argument. Now it's a matter of city ordinance. So infant baptism is no longer just a church law. And here's where we get the this, this sacralism uh, being played out here. It is now an ordinance of the city, uh, of the town of, Z- of Zurich. So now it is a law that infants must be baptized no matter what <laughs> in the city. So... After, after that proclamation of infant baptism in the city, we're going to actually start seeing persecution of this Anabaptist movement happening in Zurich, especially. Uh, again, this, the city council isn't arbitrary in, in these proclamations that they give. When they give one, that means they're going to enforce them. And now we have families that are not baptizing their children. Officers are going out into the towns. They're figuring out who is withholding their children. They are arresting the leaders that are are promulgating this idea of infant baptism or of, of against infant baptism. And they're, they're, they're attempting to have these people recant from, from these, uh, these credo uh, Baptist beliefs, uh, not only recant, but especially those that are withholding their children for baptism recant and then have them baptized, of course. And they're trying to get the, the leaders to just recant, uh, anabaptism altogether. Most of the laymen, a lot of times when they're pressured, obviously they, they do recant. They take back whatever belief system that these Anabaptist leaders have brought them into, and they bring their children to be baptized. The leaders, of course, are, are more antagonistic. They're not going to recant uh, their doctrines. They're, they are the ones that are coming up with this, and they, and they believe it. So those that are not recanting, they keep them in prison. City council is keeping them in prison. And now they're actually only going to feed them bread and water. So initially it was just putting them in prison. And, and now it's turning into, well, we're actually going to reduce your rations in prison to food and water. They're, again, they're trying to uh, promote a, them to recant their, their belief system. And eventually it's going to turn to uh, expelling Anabaptists from the town, especially those that are, that are very influential uh, when the city, when the initial ordinance came about, and the city proclaimed that those that are not native to Zurich are have to leave, that's Rublin. Wilhelm Rublin leaves uh, and goes to uh, a town called Wald's Hut, and he starts proclaiming the Anabaptist message there. He brings a local pastor into the fold. His name is uh, Hubmeyer. And Hubmeyer is an a educated man, well-spoken man, and brings, uh, eventually brings hundreds of people into this Anabaptist movement. Uh, Will, or, uh, Hubmeyer actually studied under, under John Eck, who, again, is the opponent, opponent in Luther at the beginning of the Reformation in, in Germany. Um, after Hub, Hubmeyer read Luther's works, he actually resigned as a cathedral preacher, and he's rebaptized by Rublin, and 
after his baptism, writes a lot of books and pamphlets on, on the issue of baptism. Uh, it's, it's loud. Okay. So I mentioned at the beginning of the study that both the Protestants and the, and the Catholics are, are antagonistic against the Anabaptist movement. They see them as a threat, not just in a th- by authoritarily a threat, but they're a threat in orthodoxy as well. So you have, you're starting to get pressure on both sides. And, and Zurich, they're, getting ex- they're, they're either putting them in prison or they're expelling those that are not native there. And now you have the, the Catholic side coming in and rooting out heresy. Uh, not only the Anabaptists, of course, they're, they're rooting out any heresy. This, the Reformation, those of the Reformation as well, like Martin Bootser or uh, Melanchthon or uh, those guys as well. So in this town of Walshut, Archduke Ferdinand, who is the brother of Charles V, who is the emperor, current emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, comes into the town looking to root out any type of heresy, but especially uh, the Anabaptist heresy that's been promulgating through, uh, through Germany at the time. And they, he knows of, of Hubmeier and what he's doing in, in Waldshut. And there is, while he's trying to root out all heresy, he is somewhat focusing on, on, on Hubmeier. Well, Hubmeier flees Waldshut with his family. He flees to Zurich. And of course, upon getting to Zurich, uh, he's imprisoned there for his for the Anabaptists uh, for him promulgating Anabaptism, and during his imprisonment in in Zurich, they're they're doing their normal uh, routine of trying to get him to recant. So, throwing him in prison and uh, more of like intimidation, and then they kind of get sick of doing that. So, <laughs> they. I'm not sure who decides this, but someone decides it's a good idea to put Hubmeier on a stretch rack. Uh, probably one of the more known torture devices and, and especially the 16th century where they would rack you. I think they, I think they actually do that too in the movie Braveheart and William Wallace. I think that's like the first, first thing they do. Is they, I think they tie his arms and the horses. They whip the horses and they're, they're stretching them out on the rack. Well, that's what they do to Hubmeier and trying to get him to recant, right? Well, you can imagine that you're probably going to recant from most things under that kind of uh, <laughs> under that kind of pressure. And Hubmeier does recant uh, from his Anabaptist uh, views. He, he under that under that uh, pressure, he does recant, and they they let him go and. Actually, the, the city council in Zurich kind of sympathize with Hubmeier. They know that he's being sought after by Archduke Ferdinand's forces, his influence. And they allow him to leave under the cover of night so that the, the Catholics can't, can't uh, arrest him. So they let him leave under the cover of night. Unfortunately, though, uh, Ferdinand, Archduke Ferdinand does capture Hubmeier. And he's tried in the traditional Roman Catholic way. It's not really a trial. It's more of a mock trial. Uh, he, he's Not only is he convicted of, of the heresy of Anabaptism, but of course going against Mass. Pretty much all, all of the accusations that any Reformed Protestant at the time would be accused of. <clears throat> and he's sentenced to death. He's not captured alone. He's captured with his wife. So he's sentenced to death. He's burned at the stake. And three days uh, later, his wife is thrown into the Dan- Danube River where she drowns and dies as well. This was the first, well, the first Anabaptist, because they still would consider him Anabaptist, even though he recants. But uh, this, his death kind of sends shockwaves to the Anabaptist movement. Um, and, and the way he dies and uh, the death of his wife as well. And this is where we see the Anabaptist movement start to become more radical. So with the pressure of now the Protestants and the Catholics, the, the Anabaptist movement is going to start seeing themselves as marginalized, obviously. And because they see themselves as true believers, the true believers of the church, uh, they're, they're going to become a little bit more radical in what they do 
with the Protestants and the Catholics. Um, And what what ends up happening is as these Anabaptist leaders are going around spreading this this message, the, the laymen are starting to get rid of even though at the beginning of this movement, Sola Scriptura was the primary focus, well, it's starting to get to the point where Scripture is actually not only ignored, but they actually are starting to make the argument that the letter kills, but the Spirit quickens. Uh, they're going to start burning their New Testaments because they, they see that they are, be, they are getting revelation from God, and that is going to be put higher than what is written uh, in God's Word. So they're going to start, they're going to get rid of these, these New Testaments, they start burning them, and they start claiming that what is revealed to them in their minds is actually what what God is 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 that is the revelation. the The New Testament is no longer uh, authoritative. It is going to be what God tells them in their mind at any given moment, and they're going to say if they whatever they whatever comes into their brains, they're actually going to say that's God's will. So in this, as the movement starts becoming more radical and is spreading to, to more towns around uh, Germany and Austria, and whatnot, uh, some Anabaptists, some of the leaders uh, go to Strasbourg. Uh, Strasbourg has the nickname at the time of the City of Hope, the Refuge for Righteousness. And the Anabaptist leaders are actually hoping that the move there will give them uh, more of a cover for them promoting their belief system. But of, of course, at the time, these cities are run by prince bishops, and they're pretty iron-fisted. Any type of agitation in a city, they're going to meet with, uh, with force, and they're going to kick them out. That's essentially what happens to Strasbourg, too. Uh, these, these leaders are... And Martin uh, Bootser is there in, in Strasbourg, and he's actually become one of the... One of the prominent antagonists against Anabaptists and pushing them out of Strasbourg. Um, and uh, if you're not sure who Martin Bootser is, uh, uh, you can just look him up. Uh, but he is a, a reformer as well. <clears throat> and as they're getting kicked out of Strasbourg, the Anabaptist movement go, ends up in Worms. Of course, we are all familiar with Worms and the Diet of Worms with Luther uh, but the Anabaptist uh, leader, leadership ends up at Worms, and this is—I thought this was interesting. This is an interesting tidbit of, of history. In Worms, uh, the Anabaptist leaders, two of them specifically, uh, uh, Denk and Hetzer, uh, they translate the Old Testament from Hebrew to German. That's in 1527. Of course, Luther translates his. German uh, Bible in 1532. So from 1527 up until Martin Luther's translation, the 1527 version was actually very, was widely used uh, up until 1532 and actually goes through many revisions, even even subsequent, uh, the first publication of that translation. As we continue forward in time, we're going to start seeing more persecutions against the Anabaptists from both the Protestant side and the Catholic side. And I, I just wanted to list some of the things that they're going to undergo here in different cities as the cities just get sick of them being there, agitating the, the populace. The leaders are going to make them sell their property if an Anabaptist lives in a certain city. Even if they're native there, they're going to, they're going to demand that they sell their property and they're going, to, they're going to kick them out of town. And a lot of them, of course, are just, you know, a lot of them had children. So a lot of, a lot of these city councils are, are kicking women and children out of their homes. <clears throat> uh, one guy, one Anabaptist leader in particular, his name is Hutt. Uh, he died uh, from, he was tortured. Uh, he actually dies of, of asphyxiation from a fire. So they torture him. His body is mutilated. He's laying on the floor. Someone starts a fire near him, and he's so so beat up he can't move, and he ends up uh, asphyxi- uh, dying of asphyxiation from from the smoke. So dying of uh, smoke inhalation, essentially. 
Uh, even after he dies, even after Hut dies from asphyxiation, they still try him, find him guilty, and then burn his body at the stake. Um, so the, they're not messing around with, uh, with, these, with these judgments on these Anabaptists. Of course, even alive, they're burning uh, Anabaptist leaders at the stake. They're drowning them. Uh, and we, we saw that Hubmeyer, not only him, but his wife was, was drowned as well. <clears throat> and uh, a very crucial event then happens in 1524. Of course, uh, the, the Peasants' Revolt or the Peasants' War uh, in 1524. Over 100,000 pe- peasants are, are killed uh, during this engagement. And it really disillusions a lot of people. Uh, it, uh, that's a turning point for Luther himself. It changes the focus, especially for Anabaptists. They're still promoting their Anabaptist theology. But it, it kind of turns from that being the most important thing to, to uh, uh, eschatological ideas. So famine is happening. War is happening. We just read some of the persecutions that are happening to the Anabaptists. It, it is, it's no wonder that their mind goes to... Uh, eschatological ideas, right? They want to be, in their minds, they want to be free of this persecution. They want Christ to come. To, in, their, in their eyes, they are the true believers. They believe that everyone else is going to be judged when Christ returns. And we're going to see a transition that will ultimately lead to the Anabaptists coming to Munster, and where we're going to see that, that rebellion happen. Uh, so the Peasants' Revolt is a big turning point. Um, so we're going to start seeing Anabaptist leaders actually start predicting Christ's return. Uh, uh, one, of the, one of the leaders in particular dates, uh, um, well, Hutt, the guy that was we talked about that died of the asphyxiation of the fire, he actually predicts that Christ is going to return in 1528 uh, after the Peasants' Revolt, right? <clears throat> and so, so again... Just to, to emphasize that the peasants', peasants revolt is a turning point so, and for for everyone in what's happening in this time frame for the Catholics obviously uh, geopolitical events uh, for the Protestants and and for the Anabaptists all right just to kind of go over the original final few leaders so a lot of them are are being uh, what they would term martyred or killed they're they're killed uh, I think uh who was it? Was it James White? I think it was James White. In his teaching, he said the average lifespan of an Anabaptist leader is around was around four years. <laughs> uh, so you you can see uh, if you if you are an Anabaptist, especially a, a leader, uh, you can you, you you don't expect to live very long, and that is actually going to have a dramatic effect on w- how the Anabaptist movement is usurped by lower men. When I say lower men, they're going to be less educated, and they're they're going to take these doctrines that these original leaders are promoting, and and take them to places well, I'm sure they never the original leaders never intended them to go. <clears throat> um, so the final few original leaders uh, of these Anabaptist movement, and most of them come from the Swiss Reformation. Uh, we have. Conrad Grable, right? We talked about him. We didn't mention this guy, but uh, his last name's uh, Mance. He's he's a well-known leader in, in the Anabaptist movement. Didn't really mention him, but he is one. Uh, Blau, uh, I'm going to mess this guy's name up. Uh, Blaurock. Uh, these three men are kind of traveling together. Uh, well, not when I say together. They're going to the same towns, and sometimes they, they split up. But uh, all three of these guys are arrested. And they actually, when they're arrested, they actually turn them back over to to Zurich, the city of Zurich. Uh, and just to show that even on the Protestant side, even though they're persecuting the Anabaptists, they're actually allowing them to debate their their cause, especially at the beginning. Uh, but this time, they when when they're uh, when they're uh, transported back to Zurich. <clears throat> They're put up in, in a debate uh, format again with Zwingli. This one, though, is not really an actual debate. It's more, it's kind of a, uh, more of a, uh, 
uh, a judgment hearing. Honestly, it's not. They're not really debating anything. They're not open to ideas. They've already they've already condemned these ideas as as heretical to the point of death. Obviously, right? <clears throat> um, so, but it is it is called a debate, but and not not especially compared to the original debates towards the beginning of the Reformation between Conrad and Zwingli. It's nothing like that. Uh, after the debate, of course, they're condemned. They're uh, officially arrested in Zurich, put in prison. Uh, eventually, they escape. Uh, they, it, obviously, I don't know what... Security back then wasn't very good, obviously. There were probably many opportunities to escape. There were probably sympathizers that helped them. Uh, but any means, they escape. And Conrad Grable goes to a town... Uh, starts preaching the Anabaptist message there, but he actually he, he gets the, the Black Plague, ends up dying of the plague. <clears throat> the other two, uh, Mance and, and Balrock, uh, Blaurock, Blaurock, I think, uh, they were both arrested again. They were caught and arrested again. Mance was drowned. Uh, you can actually go to the river in, in Zurich where he's drowned. Uh, and the way they did it, they tied his hands and on a stick and, and threw him in. But he's drowned, and Blaurock is is beaten in Zurich. Uh, but they release him. Uh, he's condemned to death, but because he's not a uh, because he's not native to Zurich, he's actually let go. But he eventually dies in the town of, of uh, Tyrol, and uh, he's burned at the stake as well. So of the of the. Original leaders of this movement, Wilhelm Rublin is the only one that's really left uh, of the Swiss Reformation, anyway. Uh, there's a synod uh, of the Anabastus movement in 1527. Uh, they come and uh, write up seven points or seven uh, articles of a confession of faith. And you can actually look those up. You can look up the, the, the Synod of 1527 Anabaptists, and then you can actually read these articles of faith that, that they came up with. Some of the things that they, they – well, the seven articles pertain to, of course, baptism, uh, excommunication, uh, transubstantiation, the idea of that, the separation from nonbelievers. talked about that idea at the beginning. Office of the pastor, the sword, and the, and the magistracy. So the argument against sacralism, essentially. And finally, there's an oath at the very end of, of the Anabaptists. And uh, so what ends up, what does end up happening is instead of the Anabaptists going to cities and trying to live in like Strasbourg or Zurich or something like that, because they're all getting kicked out or worse, they start coming up with these more like these convents. And one of the things we see with the, what the Anabaptists do is they, they take the idea of apostolic communism where all of them are selling everything they own. They're laying it at these leaders' feet, of course, and they decide that, okay, well, these are, these are, these are actual Christians, right? The idea of separating from non-believers. For whatever, whatever vetting system they use, they can determine that these are actual Christians, and they're going to live in this commune. Nobody can own any property, uh, no one can have any of their own money. They try to disperse the funds uh, evenly. Uh, you can, uh, if you're saying, "Hey, I've heard of this the system before, but it's been in a country far away," uh, and I think the name his name was Lenin or Stalin or Mao or yes, well, it's very similar. Actually, much later, of course, in postmodernism. Uh, they actually use these ideas from from Munster and, and communism, and a lot of communist leaders look to this look to this as the actually very first idea uh, or society using communism. Yeah, that may be a stretch, anyway. But so these co- these convents where all these Christians there would be a one there would be a leader that kind of led everything. But what was happening was because of these these guidelines of not owning any property. A lot of times there would be accusations of these leaders owning something at one point and they would actually get run out. Uh, they would get kicked out of these convents. Or they would just be too harsh on the people. Uh, they'd be too authoritarian or something like that. And Rublin, the last uh, early surviving Swiss uh, Anabaptist, 
ends up at one of these convents and and uh, and Auschwitz is is where the convent is. And he becomes a leader, right? But just like many before him and many after, he's accused of owning property. He, uh, they call him a, they call him Ananias uh, in, in, the, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So they run him out. And of all the things, of all the things that have happened to Rublin up to this point, that would maybe would have convinced him of his Anabaptist doctrines are are maybe not right or. <laughs> Maybe he needs to reevaluate. Him getting kicked out of the convent actually is what what disassociates him from the Anabaptist movement. So he gets kicked out of this convent, and actually he he's the only one. Uh, and there, well, there might be more. He's the only one that I know of. And if you guys know of any others, you can correct me. But he actually lives in peace uh, with his wife, moving from a couple towns, ending up back in Zurich eventually. And... Uh, doesn't die a death like burning at the stake or drowning. Okay, so that is a brief, and when I say brief, it's 52 minutes, but that is a brief summary of the Anabaptist movement in the early time of the Swiss Reformation. What we'll do next week, there's some other Anabaptist characters that are integral in the manifestation of the Munster Rebellion. We'll briefly touch on those, and a lot of those guys are actually in the Munster story anyway. So uh, they'll probably overlap a little bit. But I hope that gives you a a better understanding of Anabaptism uh, and what the thought process was. If you really want to understand Anabaptism a little better, you can look up the the seven articles of the Synod in 1527. Um, Another good book, if you want to know more about the... um, The Beginnings of Anabaptism, a book called Henry VIII and the Anabaptists. And the beginning of the book especially goes into the birth and growth of Anabaptism, uh, a great resource. And actually, many Anabaptists were killed in England eventually by Henry VIII, of course. <clears throat> and even as time goes on later in that. Uh, the other book, I think I mentioned it at the beginning of the study, but... Uh, this book was recommended by uh, even James White. It's the Taylor King, the rise and fall of the Anabaptist rebellion, or the rise and fall of the Anabaptist kingdom of Munster. Great book, uh, well written. Uh, highly recommended if you if you want to know more even before the studies. Okay, well let's end in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us again to meet this evening. I hope uh, that I was able to actually communicate uh, some of the belief systems of this Anabaptist movement as we look into the history of the church and uh, and your people. And uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.